millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome to The Art Detective with me, Dr. Yanina Ramirez. I'm an Oxford art historian, a broadcaster and a writer, but for the purposes of this podcast, I'm your Inspector Clouseau. I will be exploring an artwork in great detail, pulling out the secrets and the clues hidden within, and hopefully shedding light on some of our best-loved, best-known artworks. I am in the company of a very able assistant today, (laughs) Jim Peters, my very close friend, fellow muso, but more importantly... Curator of, now get, help Collection, me out here. Collections manager, to give me my proper title. Collections manager yeah. of? Um, well, it's Britain, Europe and prehistory here at the British Museum. So that doesn't really tell you much, but I, I look after the collections that stem back 1.8 million years ago to the earliest stone tools from Tanzania, right up to contemporary sort of Scandic glassware and Norwegian basketry. So... Um, rather a lot of stuff. And you have got the dream job. I am (laughs) so envious of your job because you really do get to rummage around the collections of the British Museum. (laughs) You have it all to yourself, the keys to every door. (laughs) Pretty much, yeah. I mean, that's what I'm here for, to any handling of objects that needs to be done with our collections. That's my responsibility to make sure it happens. And so, we met years ago because you were, uh, you brought out the wonderful treasures that I've encountered in filming. Yes. And yep. you have to stand there and make sure that us crazy presenters don't drop things. And That's right. And, <laughs> and, yeah, and behave. So, um, but this is this is nice to get a chance to actually sit down and just yeah wax lyrical over one of one single individual treasure it's rather special this i think so and we're in a secret back room yep. uh, and we have a very exciting thing for you listeners because in previous episodes we've looked at artworks on screens in books we've encountered a few but today jim has done the most extraordinary thing he has taken out this particular treasure we have it here in front of us and i can't tell you how excited <laughs> i am this is For me, this is one of the most magnificent pieces from my favourite period of history. I am in the presence of the Sutton Hughes shoulder clasps, um, just the most stunning gold and garnet cloisonné objects, mouth-watering. I first got to see them 16 years ago. Jim knows this story. I was a giddy MA student and I haven't seen them in the flesh like this since then. So you've done me a huge favour. It's... it's (laughs) Yeah, it's one of the perks of the job to be able to get things like this off display or out of the stores and and re-engage with them. And wow, Mm. yeah, there is nothing like 
there's something new shoulder class. There really isn't. They're, they're, they're unique. And still, after all these years, because you've been here, what, 17, 17 years? 17 years, yeah. And yeah. after all those years, they still get Absolutely, you. yeah. I mean, it, it, and especially today, having got them off display, because I walk past the cases and, and check cases every day in the mornings. But um, So I see them every day. Um, and to an extent, that can make you a bit blasé about them. So to open the case and then take them off and look at them in the flesh, as it were, was just, it kind of reinvigorates the enthusiasm. You suddenly realise, oh, wow, yeah. they are just stunning pieces. They are absolutely extraordinary. So we should probably describe them for the listeners. So they are, what, about 15, 20 centimetres across yep. by about 8 centimetres, 9 centimetres high. There's a pair that's yep. the other amazing thing. We've got all four sections because um, currently in front of us, you've got them with the pins out. Yep. So you can see how the mechanism actually worked. Um, now, these were designed to go on the shoulders and hold up a leather. Sort of curious, weren't they? A leather um, well, that's, yeah. I mean, the, the, there's also the thought that maybe it, it would have been a lighter sort of more cloak um, like sort of item of clothing than originally they thought it was leather but now because we're studying the the loops underneath and you know things change all the time um but the idea yes is that it, it's it's it, they they sit over the shoulders um and they're hinged so they give a greater flexibility um and they have these amazing pins with and i'm, I'm never quite sure what animal that is meant to be on uh, do you know this is the other thing that's exciting i'm going to be able to touch them yeah. i have my obligatory yeah. blue gloves on but um, can I pick them up? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and the, the, yeah so they, <laughs> this is where I get a bit faint. Oh, my goodness. Right. Is it heavy? Very heavy. Really? Yeah. I'm only holding one section of the four. I mean, um, between them, there are 184 grams of gold between the, t- the, t- the, two, the, the, you know, the two pairs. And are these, so, so there's solid gold inset. Yeah. yeah and that is gold. such a chunk of gold. And, and gold, uh, you know, the further back, really, in history you go, um, the pure the gold tends to be, mm. you know, because they're, they're they're not they're not really adding anything to it to make it more malleable, or more workable. Which gold happens, you know, happens with gold now. But it tends to be as as it comes. Yeah, it's not alloyed down, is it? No, at all? no. So it's God, um, it's really, really they they are quite a weight. But also, I think what's amazing when you see them out like this. Um, so I'm turning one half over now and you can see the array of the hooks on yeah, the back yeah. um and so that's that would be i've always thought leather was too thick i've always thought yeah. it had to be probably good solid english wool good yeah wool and, and i mean it would it would have obviously you know you can imagine it must have been something quite spectacular and quite um sort of regal looking really to have those attached to it it would have been a, a smart bit of clothing Definitely. um and I think the idea originally with the leather was that it follows on from a kind of the, the sort of Roman military um, sort of wear. But it's you're right; those loops are too small. It would have, it needed to be something quite delicate because to put leather through there, it would have had to be thin strips, and they would have had to be very soft and wet to be able to feed them through. But it still works, doesn't it? Oh, absolutely. So the they technology still, of this is that you could still yeah, put it still together. Ju- pin goes yeah. in. They, I mean, the reason they're separated is because it helps us explain to the public when they're on display exactly how they work. But we could equally display them joined, you know. Um, in fact, they used to be displayed joined yeah. with the pin in place. Um, 
So, and then, then when they're together, you get the real sense of, of the, the curve of them and how that sits on the shoulders. Exactly. And I mean, let's put it into context again uh, in terms of date. We're talking about 625 for Sutton Hirsch at Burial, aren't we? Yeah, yeah. So these, I mean, again, the, the dating of this is, is, is something that people aren't entirely sure of. And obviously it predates the burial. We don't know how far in front of the burial these were made. Um, but they're, yeah, they're, it's 6th it's century, I think, really, late 6th century, early 7th. 7th, so, yeah. yeah. And in terms of where these were found um i mean when i when i teach on the, the sutton who ship burial i always say it's it's, it's england's tutankhamun's tomb really uh, uh, yeah oh absolutely no without a shadow of a doubt i think that's that's completely right and i mean it's just like tutankhamun has its its fantastic kind of backstory um the sutton who does as well because the land belonged to it was mrs edith pretty yeah and she'd been having, if I remember the story right, she'd been having recurring dreams about um, about something underneath the mounds on her land. Her land was sort of covered in in dips and, and mounds. Um, and she contacted, um, I think she contacted Basil Brown directly, yeah. who was an art, famous archaeologist at the time, and said, would you come and have a look? I'm sure there's something under here. Um, it's such a prosaic story, isn't it? The yeah. names, Edith Pretty oh, and Basil that, Brown. It's brilliant. It's absolutely <laughs> Love brilliant. It. Um, and, and he came and he excavated and, yeah, found just amazing things. Mm. You know, if there was, it was a ship burial. So that, by that, it means there was a ship. Yeah. I mean, the ship had rotted away. But we've got all the rusty rivets here. Well, well so, that's what he was so good at, Basil, wasn't he? Because he, he was quite good at it. It's in East Anglia, Sutton Hoo, um, on the edge, looking out towards Scandinavia, if you like. Yeah, and there's yeah. a lot of, well, maybe we can talk about the, the Scandinavian influence on the Sutton Hoo ship barrel. But um, the way that he excavated was he very carefully left the rivets in place. Yeah, yeah. He didn't plunder them, which is what archaeologists had been prone to do. Yeah, no, he was and, he was a new breed, you know, that new breed of archaeologists that I think kind of understood the 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 fact that everything had to be done methodically and logically and had to be recorded and it's it's yeah, it's a real boon to us that he 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 approached it like that because the information we've been able to get is, you know, unprecedented really. It's even if you take away what was found there um, the information just from the excavation itself is, you know, changed our, our thinking of things, I think, really. I mean, Sutton who changed so much. Yeah. It changed everything. I mean, I, I'm a medievalist studying the Anglo-Saxon period, and you've got sort of pre-Sutton Who scholarship and post-Sutton Who yep. scholarship, and the two are not the same thing. It, it rewrote all the books. Yeah. And, um, and I think it, it's important to, to remember that, you know, there are so many barrows and mounds on the English but, landscape, but yeah. they're all robbed, essentially. Yeah. I mean, that was, it was one of those sort of Sunday afternoon activities yeah. for the rich and landed gentry to go out and stick a hole down the middle of a local barrow. Um, <laughs> and, and, and sadly, it's, We've lost a lot, but fortunately, that isn't what happened at Sutton Hoo. And I mean, I mean this excavations still happen that are ongoing there. You know, like late nineties, they were still excavating there. This was nineteen thirty-seven was the original excavation. Um, but there's there's a whole cemetery of sand bodies there. Yeah. Where you know, then there's uh, there's just so much. There's so much, but it's it's known it's known for the ship burial, and I suppose really it's known for the helmet. That's the iconic thing. Yeah, yeah. And I always say that you know the Sutton Hoo helmet is probably the second most famous helmet in the entire world. 
And I would say the first most famous helmet is Darth Vader's helmet. Wow. Darth Vader's helmet, though, is reputed to have been based and inspired on the Sutton Hoon helmet. This so, I know. So this I know. I know, so it all comes around. Yes, but if you pick up a book anywhere in the world, anywhere in the world, and, and it's, it, it covers the Anglo-Saxon period, there will probably be a picture of the Sutton Hoon helmet. Amazing. So that's what I think, that's the iconic thing. But actually, um, you know, once you've taken that in go around the side of the case and have a look at the shoulder clasps oh, yeah. and have a look at the rest of the treasures and they are you know they to me they overshadow the helmet as amazing as it is and as iconic as the helmet is the it doesn't hold a, you know, the torch to these, these i have helmet. to agree i mean i think that the the whole story of the sutton who ship burial could i can talk about it for days <laughs> you know you go yeah. around each artifact and and you have a whole world view there in that one burial you yeah. have you know enamel from Ireland, you've got Byzantine silver dishes, you've got yeah. you know, imports from the continent, the the Frankish coins. I mean, yep, that's what we yep. use to date the Sutton Hooship burial, isn't it? It's the coins. Yeah, and it's, it's, that's it. it, that, it, it it's, it's the whole world at that time Yeah. in one excavation. And even to the extent that, you know, the, the, for me, one of the most interesting aspects of it, um, which I try and enthuse people with when we're in the gallery, but I'm not sure it ever works, <laughs> is we've got the, the rusty cauldron chain. Um, which in the new display we're able to show in its full length. Almost, it's looped <coughs> over on the top. It's, it's not really even idiot. high enough yeah. to take it. Well, that's yeah, that was an oversight on the case, but um, <laughs> and not my fault. But the thing with that is obviously by having by being able to tell the length of the golden chain meant that we were able to then work out the dimensions of the Great Hall. And the Great Hall is you know that's so central to to that 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 period of living. You know that's where Beowulf starts. Exactly. So it's it, it was aside of all, all these wonderful things, even just something so simple as the length of a chain yeah. found on the site. It really is, um, you know, it really is a, a just, a, it, cha it changed everything. It changed everything because I think up until that point, there was this sense of the Anglo-Saxon period being a dark age. Yeah. We yeah. don't use that term now, but, no. um, they, but being a time when the lights went out and everyone lived in tiny little Grubenhauser, little hovels yeah. in the ground. And, and because would, they lived in massive timber halls, which we're only finding with archaeological developments, yeah. sort of post-hold technology, there was no evidence for that in the record. And so people just didn't believe in the, the literary idea yeah, exactly, of the hall, exactly. did they? Beowulf talks about the hall. Beowulf yeah. talks about that being, as you say, the sort of hub of culture and society. Yeah, it was completely. But it's... until Sutton, who we had no evidence no. for it. And that suddenly, it was, um, yeah, like you say, the Sutton who turned the light on, I think, really, didn't it? Um, and that was it. Like you were saying, Alice, sort of pre-Sutton who and post-Sutton who. Pre-Sutton who, yeah, it was very much that idea of it was it was uncultured and, you know, they, the, the Romans had gone and no one sort of cared anymore. It was just plundering everything and using it to whatever and had no culture and no sense of artistic design or anything. And then suddenly something who was found and all those people had to stop talking and rethink their opinions. And um, and add central to all of that, I think, the, the because there is nothing else like the shoulder class. You know, other things you can compare and you can say that's like that, that's like that, that came from here, that came... The shoulder class you just have to take as an individual thing because there is nothing else like that. To me, they are just... <laughs> I had some students where I was explaining to them the technology that went into making it, which which we can discuss as well, but the student went, oh, they have to have come from space. <laughs> There, yeah. there is something beyond my... That I've known them for so long. I've looked at them so many times. And, and the, the thing is, you, your mind can imagine the sorts of craftsmanship, the skill that the craftsman that made this had. But there comes a point where it gets so microscopic, so detailed, yeah. 
that it actually beggars belief if they're doing this without electricity, without running well, water. Exactly. This is the th- I, I still, even though, like you say, I know the techniques or, or you know, I've had to explain how these things were made, I still can't quite believe it. Yeah. Um, and in fact, this is, I was watching a program, um, the, the Orkney program that's been on recently, and Neil Oliver said, whenever he goes to Scarborough, he's always got this kind of, there's there's 5% in the back of his head that doesn't believe it's real. Yeah. He's always like, it's Scarborough is so perfect that there's a bit of him that thinks, we've got it wrong, and someone made that not that long ago, because <laughs> how can it be what it is? And I think that's saying the show, I look, I just, I genuinely cannot, quite get my head around the fact that someone is able to make that yeah and it doesn't matter how many times you look at it doesn't matter how yeah. long you study it these are things that push you to the limits of yeah. what you think like you said, there's, no, there's no electricity no. it's it's the, the strongest light you've got is the natural daylight and however many hours you've got of that like, there's magnification exactly. you know it's just what they had to produce this is and yet they managed it and i i don't think it's not the sort of thing that you can make nowadays, I exactly. don't think. Well, we, we did some research when we did Trish the Anglo-Saxons yeah, yeah. and we went to Asquith's and asked them how long, and they would do it now with lasers. They yeah. couldn't do it by the naked eye. And it would take months and it would cost hundreds of thousands of pounds to make one. Mm. And that's with all our modern technology. Yeah. You know. But this, we have to put this into its context. This is happening in, you know, at the turn of the of the 6th century into the 7th century. And this is gold and garnet that is being worked so exquisitely. I mean, there is a fashion for gold and garnet in the Anglo-Saxon period, isn't there? The the Staffordshire Horde has reinforced that. Yeah. And, I mean, the thing thing that's amazing about these is that it's it's the quantity. You know, you have to have the quantity of that much of the raw materials to be able to do it. Mm. You know, to, to have that quantity of garnets to be able, you you either have to be unbelievably precise with every single cut you make. And when you look at the size of some of these, mm. you know, some of the sort of the zoomorphic kind of interlacing designs, which are all inlaid, are just you know that's it's millimeters. You're you're literally cutting millimeters of of garnet to drop into these settings. You either have to be unbelievably confident and precise, or you you have to have enough of the raw material that you can waste it. You can waste it. Um, either of those two sort of are, are, are incredible. Because the garnet's coming from where do we think Eastern Europe? Afghanistan? Yeah, yeah, I think yeah. I mean that's that's the the considered opinion that it's come up from yeah maybe Afghanistan or come across to Europe and and I think the the, the glass the sort of millefury glass I think is is Roman glass that's been reused. reused yeah. Um, but, but the gold even, the gold, because that's from the other things I find interesting. They're importing the garnet, they're importing the glass, yeah. they're importing the gold. It's not Welsh gold, it's not no. native gold, um, which has that sort of rosy tint to yeah, it. Yeah. This has had to have travelled as well, hasn't it? But, so so it, Exactly, and again, that just adds to the picture of what, you know, what, how important whoever this was, um, but also the fact that... Um, it wasn't a dark age. Definitely, you know, it's cosmopolitan. Ha- it's international. Yeah. People are trading vast distances, yeah. and they're not. And they're not trade. It's not trading. You're not trading sort of commodities. You're not trading so that you can eat. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. 
To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Um, and that you can you can look after your life and trade life. You're trading something that, that goes into something like this. That's so sophisticated. And, you know, to, to, to go and source that sort of material to be able to make something like this, it's... Um, it, it's mind-blowing really. and then to put it in the ground yeah your, your culture is so luxurious that you've got enough to yeah. actually put this in as a de- as a death offering i mean that's the other thing about that i suppose we should say about this sutton Hughes ship burial it is a burial yes it is yeah. i know that puritans question whether there was a body there because there is no trace because no. The, the, the soil was so acidic wasn't yeah it, really? yeah it's, eaten away any yeah. trace but the positioning of everything these are the accoutrements of a very very wealthy yeah. anglo-saxon incredibly from yeah. pre-christian time this is on the edge this is on that it, turning point yeah and i think you know the 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 the, the iconography that's used the symbolism that's used in, in all the pieces shows that it's it's that sort of pre-christian um period but we there's been many kind of different interpretations as to who this person was. And to be perfectly honest, I don't subscribe to any of them. Really? I you just, don't even go with the Radwald Well, I, I mean, it could be, but then it might not be. So I'd rather just just stand in wonder, really, rather than, you know, um, take a very kind of sort of zen approach to it and just, like, admire it for what it is rather than overthinking it. I like um, that. I like that. I've, I mean, I've, I've sort of, I tend to come down on the side that if it is going to be anyone, it's going to be... Radwald, King of the East Anglians, this well, this this slippery character indeed who converts to Christianity and then goes back to his Germanic pagan gods. And so, I mean, it's 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 almost too easy with Sutton Hoo because you have things like the baptismal spoons yes, in the collections. Yeah, exactly. so there's this suggestion of Christianity hovering around the edges, yeah. but what it is at its core is a very Germanic burial yeah. in a ship with all the goods that he would need for Valhalla, for the afterlife. Yeah. Um, and, you know, again, it's this idea of investment in death, isn't it? This is a huge investment. Yeah. And then this is it. I mean, I, I was saying earlier about that quote, which is probably a good time to sort of mention, that um, I was reading a bit of background about this, and I came across this quote, which is supposedly Theodoric the Great, was apparently uh, was reputed to as he was donning his armour for battle. Um, he was quoted as saying, let them at least say how splendid he looks in death. If they have not had the chance to admire me in fighting, and that—that's what the, that's what this is. This is someone who's saying, you know, whatever happens to me afterwards, 
I'm going to look fantastic. I'm going to look fantastic in No, death. I'm going to have stuff that no one else has got <laughs> and I'm going to take it with me. I'm not even going to leave it behind for anyone. I'm, no. have, I'm keeping this. Yeah. Well, also, I mean, there is this genuine belief that there is an afterlife that is for fighting and feasting and yeah. being magnificent. I mean, I said to you earlier that, that um, the curator of the Staffordshire Horde said, described to me these, this military elite, the sort of um, Germanic warriors that we have mem- commemorated in Beowulf and... and commemorated in things like Sutton Hoo, they are psychopathic peacocks. They yes. look incredible and they'll chop your head off yep. while they look. <laughs> yeah. And um, and this is this is sort of the ultimate warrior bling, isn't it? Yeah, it's... and I mean, I, I, I sort of, again, interpreting who these own, were, who owned them and, and what they were used for. I mean, these are, to me, this isn't even something that you'd, you would wear in battle. It's no. there too. This is just showing off. Like I said, this is complete peacock. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, the, the kind of, even the image on the boar of it, I was mm. looking at it and found that, that, for me, that's quite a confusing image because the boar's been used before by the Romans and it was a kind of a legionary thing and it was a very kind of proud, strong creature. And then you get it as in a, as a hunting animal. Mm-hmm. It's being hunted and it's normally running. Mm-hmm. So, whereas these, it's this weird kind of sort of interlocking and it's like it's grazing. Mm. So it's, it's, it's not the kind of the strong military symbolism and it's not the kind of the hunting symbolism. Mm. It's, it's something else. This is, this is something else. I don't know what that is. But I, could give you, I, could, I, I could give you a sort of way of thinking about it, which yeah, is on. if we ever do look at these creatures, because Anglo-Saxon art has a very limited vocabulary of birds and beasts. Yeah. You get the hookbeat bird. Yeah. You get the serpents, which we've got writhing around the margins and up in the legs. Yeah, which you don't even notice unless you get the chance to hold them really, really close. Well, God, I mean, the filigree ones, which actually, yeah. I'm going to pick it up again. Is that I okay? mean, yeah. I mean, no one no one would notice those. No. It's, if you, even it's, if you were wearing them, no one nobody would, would notice, notice them. them. But they're, they're there. They're for personal um, rumination. I mean, this is the thing I absolutely love about the Anglo-Saxons is their love of riddles, yeah. visual and verbal riddles. Like, to them... They haven't got television (laughs) or podcasts. They're going to sit and ruminate on these objects and their mind will pour over the details. So, yeah, you've mentioned the boars and in between the legs of the boars are these these beautiful gold um, serpents that are done with the the gold beading. Look at the the dimensions of that beading. I mean, that (laughs) needs a microscope to almost see each individual bead. Yeah, you can't really see it properly with the naked eye. You can't. I mean, they almost blur into one, but they are individual gold beads. And the balls are really interesting. I mean, uh, uh, so many people struggle to see them. So don't worry if you're listening to this and you can't see the balls. But there are two that overlap on the end of each of the um, each half of the shoulder clasp. And what's important to notice is that it's the it's the tail end that's at the edge. So you can see the sort of curly pigtail yep. at the edge and then the prickly spine. And then the two heads hang down in the middle. And like you say, Jim, it's like they're grazing. Their snouts are sort of shoved yeah, down yeah. on the ground. Um, and in, interestingly, I think that the serpents that are writhing underneath and the boar both had a role within Germanic mythology, didn't right. they? So, yeah. so Igazdril is the world serpent. Yeah, yeah. But the boars pulled the chariot of Freya, the fertility, oh, yeah. virility god. Yeah. So in a way, these are these are really good thing for a guy, a big macho guy <laughs> to work. It's like I'm I'm virile, I'm masculine, I'm yeah. I'm all man, you know. <laughs> but you're right. It's it's kind of it. There's a riddle there because you have there to is. be able to see it. Yeah. Yeah, there um, is. And you have to play with it. You have to uh, have it up close. Yeah, and I think that's another thing. It's that you almost feel that because it's a riddle, once once you've worked it out, 
there, you know, there, there, there's something there. There's a status there, even if it's just to yourself. You kind of think, well, I've seen it. I, I understand it. I know what's going on here. Well, it's about the initiates, isn't yeah. it? I mean, that's the thing about a lot of religious art is only the initiates can understand it. And actually, that's kind of what's going on here. And I mean, we see boar's tusks, don't we, in Anglo-Saxon graves. That's always yeah. a sign of this sort of masculinity, yeah. virility, fertility. I mean, boar's tusks are ground up, aren't they, as a... I think yeah, they're ground up as a potent sort of Viagra thing. And it was the Romans as well. You would yeah. used um, sort of uh, pendants made out of boards, tusks, and um, again, a very, very strong sort of male Macho symbol. thing. Yeah. So the boars are there and then the serpents are there. But you know what we must really discuss is the, the techniques that went into making this. Well, that's it. I was just saying, when you're holding it, just mm. moving it around, and you suddenly, it's oh. it's what's going on, not just with the inlay, but what's going on underneath the I inlay. <laughs> just mind-bending. It's, it's just too much, isn't it? Because it's decorated <laughs> underneath where the garnets have been cut and inlaid. It's decorated with um, a kind of a gold foil that's been that's been sort of scratched or etched with a kind of a, a crisscross pattern. But which means that as it, as it moves, it, not only does the stone catch the light, but the light is reflected in many different ways by what's going on underneath. But then when you pick it up and look at it, each individual one is kind of got a slightly different treatment. It's unbelievable. So, I mean, I, I'm feeling kind of giddy actually because <laughs> I've got it right up close to my eyes. I mean, I'm, I'm able to see inside the cousins and, and and this Cosne setting itself. I mean, God, you see it blown up on a big screen and it still doesn't make sense. But these are individually um, created receptacles made yeah. out of gold, yeah. and then the, the the gems are put in, but they're not. There's no adhesive, is no, there? That's no. done purely through the tension of, yeah, of yeah. gemstone against they're, they're, gemstone. They're, yeah, they're, they're dropped in and um, they have to be absolutely precise. You know, they have to be, the stone has to be cut exactly for the, the, the aperture that it's being dropped into. And it's been sat in an acid bath for 1,000, you know, yeah. 300, 400 well, years and, and it's still intact. Yeah, I mean, it's it's masterful. But the one thing you have to remember, and this is one of the, the, the kind of the great things about the Sutton Hoo treasures is that... Um, Although there's quite a bit of silverware there as well, mm. um, the main the, the, the main treasures that were found where the body would have been are, are gold or made of gold, um, the, the buckle and the purse and such, and and the, the belt as well, and gold pretty much comes out of the ground the same as it went in. So when Basil Brown discovered these, when he knocked back the earth and found the shoulder clasp, this is pretty much what he would have seen. You know, yeah. he, he wouldn't have had to have done much to it to have had the same sort of you know experience we're having now. Well, I remember when you, you've just recently re-exhibited the Sutton Hoo treasures in the British Museum. Yeah. And I remember you saying, because um, I said, oh, gosh, the gold buckles had a good clean-up. It looks fantastic. And No, no, yeah, it hasn't. It's, it hasn't. It's, that's just how it looks. <laughs> it always looks like that. It's just, and it's such pure gold, you know. Uh, we don't, we have to wear gloves, obviously, so we don't get fingerprints on, on it. Um, the silver would tarnish if we got fingerprints. The gold doesn't. But other than that, this is, you know, th this is how it would have looked at the time. Mm. Other things you kind of sometimes have to project, a, a, oh, it would have looked like this because the, the, the colours have gone or whatever, surface damage. But with these things, you really don't. This is this is how, how they were. Um, and I'm just looking at that. And even when you look at the, the boar's snout, yeah. um, that, that they used a completely different technique underneath on the foil. Yes, yeah. that's, that's kind of like that's that's pinpricked well, as this opposed is it, to cross hatching, and it's just this is where this sort of the, the, the extraterrestrial bit comes in. I can't understand the the cross hatching, the, the gold leaf. So, so behind each 
sliver of garnet and garnet's tough to cut it shatters quite easily but behind each bit as you say is this gold foil and the gold foil has been incised or, or, or stamped actually isn't it with a checkerboard mm-hmm. and what, what you can't see with the naked eye but you can see when you blow it up is that you can see the initial checkerboard can't you the sort of crisscross hatchings yeah inside each of those squares <laughs> is another checkerboard yeah, yeah and i mean that's where it starts to just blow your brain i mean it adds it's it's so 3d because obviously you've got the kind of the checkerboard layout of the garnets on not round the, the board, but the main the main sort of like curve. Yeah, really. That that itself is a checkerboard, and then the millefiori glass is is checkerboard, yeah. and then you've got the etching of that, and those those multiple layers of kind of repeating the similar sort of pattern just creates such a sort of such depth and such sort of a three D effect, which is. Do you know what I've never incredible. noticed until now, holding it and holding it at an angle is the millefiori glass it's some of it's inset some of it's raised that it's a, a real kind of visual riddle because your eye can't make sense of the depth of some of these cells can yeah, it yeah. and i think that's amazing because because actually one of the things that always strikes me about these is if you looked at them on shoulders and they didn't have those uh, reflective um, back plates they would be quite dull garnet yeah. is quite a dark gem yeah. and it would be very very smooth because actually you run your finger over it it's it's so smooth yeah. that there wouldn't actually be much dimension going on there at all oh, but yeah. but they've mastered the idea of light the idea that the light beam will go in through that gem hit the back plate shatter, sparkle out yep. and create something dramatic yeah. that's true artistry oh absolutely yeah. yeah yeah it's 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 taking it beyond just creating nice shoulder clasps. You know, <laughs> this is your, your this is puts it in completely differently. And I mean, even with the, the you know the quite plain and boring sort of the stepped rhomboid bit of it, that's that, that's the kind of thing you'll see on on sword pommels and yeah. sword hilts. And so that's that's nothing new. But the way it's been done and what they've done underneath mm-hmm. it, and then what they surround, you know, it's. It's just, there is nothing else like this. And, and if you try to find comparative pieces mm. to the Sutton Who shoulder class, what you end up doing is saying, oh, they use that technique on something that isn't nearly as good. Yeah, yeah. Or, oh, that's a similar kind of imagery as you find on that, which isn't really the same and isn't nearly as good. There isn't any mm. kind of, you cannot say, you can't compare like for like that's when you're looking at, at um, with quite a few of the bits of Sun Hoop, but I think the shoulder class are the ones that stand stand out on their own as you you will never find anything else no. unless there's still in the ground you haven't found them yet. Well, and then Staffordshire Horde appears and you get hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of new examples of, of this yeah. same conservative tradition of golden garnet. But you're absolutely right. You look there and you still come back to this and you still say, this is the master worker. This yeah. is this is your you know, your turner, your Picasso. This is your master craftsman Absolutely. of his time. And because let's be honest, this is probably a royal burial. Yeah. And so this is the pa- the person who is patronizing this craftsman has got the best craftsman. Yeah. And now that we're saying that to have that ready supply of raw material, yeah. you would you would have the best person working with it. Yeah. And and it shows, you know, it's it's masterful. The, the the way the way that there's just so much about it that's that's amazing. But the way they slope, the sort of the the shape of Ugh. them, the pin, the the detail, everything is just is just stunning, really. And I suppose that this is the point at which we combat the elephant in the room, which is that this is an art detective podcast. A lot of people will say, "Is this art?" Well, the, yeah, and and 
it's funny because when you when you sort of asked me if I'd be interested in doing one of these programs, and I was in my head, I was thinking of kind of art objects, um, and, and w- which, to be honest, we don't have a lot of in our collection because it's um, you know it's, it's very much archaeological based. Um, and when you suggested these, it was I was I thought, a brilliant idea because because <laughs> they're objects, they're archaeological objects. They came out the ground and they're displayed in an, an assemblage, a burial. In the museum, um, so to be able to take them aside and say, "No, these are works of art," um, is a really, really nice, fresh way of looking at them because they are. I know, think they are. They I, are and and what is art? Before, before we have a word to pin to it, which you know comes post Vasari, really, this idea of art yeah. as a discipline and the fine arts of painting, sculpture, and architecture. This is the finest expression of beauty and creativity and craftsmanship that this period was capable of creating and so in my opinion that makes it an artwork it makes it it is absolutely Mm. you know if yeah there's it's it's difficult to kind of put into words and it's what i'm finding slightly awkward or slightly difficult is the fact you and i are here and we're both just grinning (laughs) continually (laughs) we are we're we're just so so excited and so happy because they're here and we can see them and whilst we're talking we're looking at them and we we can you know we can admire them and it's really difficult to try and convey that because um and that's why i'm very privileged in the position i'm in because i get to see these objects Mm -hmm. up close so um you know, I hope that I hope that people will be able to understand why these are works of art and are not just grave goods. I think that the 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 idea of getting the sense of how actually delicate and tiny a lot of this is when you look at it on your screen, when you blow it up, when you zoom in, you don't really appreciate the the microscopic nature of so much of this. And, and yeah. I think that's what it is. We, we like the miniatures, don't we, Jim? We like yeah. everything, the, the small, the detail, the skill that goes into making yeah, something absolutely. so reduced and so perfect. Um, they are stunning. And hopefully, Art Detective listeners, you will really take the time to to really zoom in and out on these objects, take, take the time to, to notice the details we're talking about, the skill, the technology. Before we sign off, I'm just going to pick them up once. <laughs> I just, to guess. me, I'm in the presence of something that is so beautiful, so perfect. And the idea that you know, for a thousand odd years, the last pair of eyes that looked at this, for the, the, the eyes of the Anglo-Saxons that buried yeah. the person there, that it's amazing. They it's staggering. Are. We're very honoured. I'm so grateful to you for it's this. quite all right. No, it's been really good. Oh, mm. wow. Well, uh, if you've enjoyed this, podcast um hopefully you've enjoyed it a little bit as much as we have because <laughs> we genuinely are grinning like cheshire cats yeah um you can subscribe at historyhit.com slash art detective you can follow me on twitter i'm dr yanina ramirez um jim it's been amazing no it's been it's been a pleasure it really has to have the excuse to be able to get something like this off display um, and spend an afternoon looking at it with someone who's as enthusiastic about it as I am it's, it's been fantastic so thank you thanks everybody